You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. Okay, the recent summer, the recent climate devastation that has struck the country has shown us that we are now living in a climate emergency. At least 33 people have died in bushfires in Australia since the summer season began in October and some of those fires have been burning before that. Um, affecting more than 10 million hectares across the country with a shocking 1 billion animals estimated to have perished in the fires. Our next presenter has been one of the lead voices who has been warning governments of the severity of climate impacts and the associated risks and threats for many years. He is a former Commissioner of Fire and Rescue New South Wales and an internationally recognised expert in responding to major bushfires and natural disasters. He was also once a pimply-faced, three years younger than me, Forest High School uh, co-student on the bus from Terry Hills to Forest High, as we've both found out together this morning. I couldn't be more delighted or prouder to be an ex-student of Forest High, to know that Greg Mullins is also an ex-student of that school, and we are both products of the fabulous Australian public education system. And what deep and abiding satisfaction it gives me to see public school students giving our predominantly private school-dominated parliament a fucking good kick up the bum. Where do I go from there? Um, I've tried not to use the F word publicly or anything, but there you go. Um, Look, this is deadly serious. Hotter, drier, windier, far more dangerous. So I've been fighting fires since 1971. Um, I grew up in Terry Hills, northern suburbs of Sydney. My father was a volunteer firefighter from the mid-1950s when he moved there. He told me stories about fighting fires as a teenager in the in 1939, January 1939, told me stories about lightning coming out of the smoke, um, which people said, that's impossible. Now we know, oh, that's pyroconvective activity. Who can spell pyrocumulonimbus? Or (laughs) public school students. Um, So so what did we see coming? And when I say we, I was told I'm only allowed to have four slides, but... Now, we are emergency leaders for climate action. Now, it's growing by the day. I had an indignant phone call last night from a former fire chief in Northern Territory, an old friend saying, why didn't you invite me? Um, Back in March last year, I started talking to former colleagues from every state and territory about climate change. And what was fascinating was they come from a spectrum of political beliefs and Each and every one of them said, yes, during our careers, we've seen things change, we've read the science, what we're seeing is actually worse than the scientific um, evidence and predictions. So we're in, we need to call on the government to do something. The 2019 fire season was always going to be a shocker. We dodged a bullet in 2018. Um, 
the monsoon came in, New South Wales became humid and wet um, in about October, November, and that enabled them to supply hundreds of firefighters to Tasmania, to Victoria, to Queensland. Um, without that, 2018 would have been a really bad year. 2019 would have been the absolute disaster that it was. So it was almost inevitable. Now, um, so what have we got? Over, over the last 20 years, reduced rainfall. So 15 to 20 per cent reduction in winter rainfall. So big deal. What's that mean? It means we can't do hazard reduction like we used to. So I remember as a kid going away in the school holidays in May and it always rained and we were always camping and it was always miserable, but we did it every year anyway. Go figure. Um, we don't get those winter rains now. So when the westerly winds come in New South Wales in July, August, and it's on average one degree warmer. Now, averages are interesting because the extremes are on top of that average. And the averages aren't just during the day, they're at night. And we get incredible drying of bushfire fuels because of that one degree kick in temperature. So once we hit August, we're getting major fires that we can't control. We're losing homes in August. That never happened. Decades ago, it just never happened. This decade, it's been happening regularly. So the New South Wales bushfire danger period runs from October to March. It's in legislation. It's 110 years of observations, weather observations. Not anymore. Runs from the first week of August, often through to May. Um, 2018, you might remember we had huge fires in southwest Sydney in April, um, running from Holsworthy through to Sutherland. Thousands of homes threatened. A couple of weeks before Tathra, we had 69 homes destroyed at Tathra on the far south coast at a time when, they, when their season should have been over. The worst fire danger index ever recorded there in that month. And we, we, we were losing houses at Bega in April that year. Um, oh, sorry, August that year, Ulladulla, Port Stephens. So 2019 came along. We were fighting fires in July up in Tenterfield. Now, my background in a nutshell, I was a volunteer firefighter with my dad. 1978, um, I became a full-time firefighter, 39-year career, 13 years as commissioner at the end. I'm now back fighting fires on the front line as a volunteer, and I've been all over the state. I'm seeing things that I never imagined. Now, again, let's see what other... Um, increased fire danger, days of very high fire danger and above. We used to have about 10 years, 13 years between bad fire seasons in New South Wales, it's just about every year now. Now, the canary in the coal mine, I think, is Tasmania. They had major bushfires in 1898, 1933, 1967, when Hobart was almost wiped out. I think 62 people lost their lives, 1,700 buildings burnt. Um, 1998, and then what happened? 2006. 2013, 2016, 2018. Are you getting the picture? The Blue Mountains, uh, 1926, I think it was 19, uh, 1939, and I think 1946, I'm not sure of that one. 1957, 68, 77, I was there fighting those fires. 1994, and then 01, um, 07, 2013, 2019. So you can see the frequency of fires becoming, uh, um, getting closer and closer together. Victoria, so big fires, 1939, 1983, Ash Wednesday, two, um, 
And so going back to the 1800s, they're about 50 years apart. And then 26 years later, 2009, we had Black Saturday. So the frequency is really concerning, and that's a symptom. Now, what our paradigm of firefighting operations in Australia, we shared resources. So the fire seasons would move from the north to the south. Queensland, which wasn't a bushfire state, but is now a bushfire state. They've had the biggest losses of homes in history this last season. Um, they'd have their season, then New South Wales would share resources, Victoria would send them up, then Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia. It was sequential. Now they overlap. And that's why in New South Wales we had firefighters from the US, Canada, New Zealand, but we can't get the aircraft from California because they overlap with us. Places that have never burned are burning. Greenland, the Arctic Circle, um, the UK. I've been advising fire chiefs in the UK for years about how to handle bushfires. This is just getting worse and worse. Now, I, I talked about my dad telling me about lightning uh, fires causing their own thunderstorms, pyroconvective activity. It was a bit like the legend of the Yeti. No one had really seen it, but apparently it happened. I've seen half a dozen this year. I'd seen two in my entire career before this. And the numbers, Jason Sharples, a scientist, about 62 going back to the 70s, I think, 30 this year, this season. So where are we going? Um, I don't know. The fire services cannot cope. We showed that. It took rain to put it out. The current fire chiefs were saying that it's going to take a huge rain event. We got the huge rain event in Sydney. So I went from coordinating fire trucks um, at fires to coordinating fire trucks at floods, trees down and flood rescues with the SES uh, last weekend. So we get these wild swings. Um, that's... <laughs> I hate this thing, the new normal. We've got to get new language because normal, people go, oh yeah, it's normal. <laughs> no, it's normal. It's not right. We can't handle it. Um, I offered to meet the Prime Minister and he said, bugger off. And, and we, now, we tried to warn him back in April, May, again in October. Um, we finally met with Minister Little Proud and he couldn't wait to get out of the meeting to disparage us in a press conference. With, we were still in Parliament House. That's the government we've got. They're in denial. We can't be. This is a disaster. This is an emergency. Thanks. Oh. Thank you, Greg. They're in denial. We can't be. This is an emergency. I just think I'll repeat everyone's last lines all day. It'll be good. Um, okay, now we're going to have a panel talking about what is everybody's problem? Climate change. Uh, we're going to talk about frontline climate stories across Australia. Australia's first responders and affected communities are confronting the devastating climate impacts playing out around the country. In this, our first session, we'll hear how bushfires and drought, national security risks and health are hitting us from all angles. We've already heard quite a lot about that from Greg, with increasing severity and regularity. And I'd like to welcome the rest of our panel, because Greg, as you can see, has already taken his seat for this session. 
Firstly, Michael Thomas. Dr Michael Thomas is Senior Fellow for the Indo-Pacific at the Centre for Climate and Security, where he leads the Climate Change for Security Professionals and Military Practitioners course. He is a graduate of the Australian Defence Force Academy and served for 20 years as an officer in the Australian Army, including stints in signals intelligence, capability management and military instruction. We also have Annika Molesworth. Annika is a farmer from Broken Hill and Director of Farmers for Climate Action, a movement of 5,000 farmers across Australia taking action behind and beyond the farm gate. She was awarded the 2015 Young Farmer of the Year, 2017 New South Wales finalist for Young Australian of the Year, and the Green Globe Award for Young Sustainability Champion. We also have Paddy Manning, who is the contributing editor politics for The Monthly, and he has more than a decade of experience as a journalist for the ABC, Crikey, The Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Australian Financial Review and The Australian. Uh, he is the author of several books and is currently working on a new one titled Body Count, How Climate Change is Killing Us. Well, catchy title. Um, would you please once again welcome all the members of the panel. How this is going to work is that each of our panellists, um, apart from Greg, who we've just heard from, will give us a, a short um, presentation, say a few words, um, and then we'll get into a discussion, and then we will open the floor to you. I hope you have got the details of the where to ask the questions, which didn't come up on the screen behind me before, um, because that's the way we're going to do it. So they'll come up on the screen here, and I'll read them to our panellists in just because of time and also it's really hard to see you. You're very in the dark. Um, only, of course, literally, not metaphorically. Okay, let us begin. And as uh, Paddy Manning is sitting next to me, he can go first. Okay, thanks, Jane. G'day, um, everyone. I'll... Forgive me if I talk a bit fast because I want to make sure I hit my five minutes. So, um, if, yeah, the slide could. Could you just show that first one? That's the book. So, uh, that's the cover, likely. Um, yeah, Body Count How Climate Change is Killing Us. So, that'll be out in May. And um, for the past eight months, I've travelled from Launceston to Townsville, King Lake to Grantham, talking to the victims of some of Australia's worst natural disasters. These are people who've lost mothers and fathers, partners, sons, daughters, and have amazing stories to tell of fear and, courage, uh, fear and courage, trauma, and recovery. Some of these tragedies are famous, like Black Saturday or the Queensland floods of 2011, and some are less well-known, like you know, heat waves or the thunderstorm asthma outbreak of 2016. When disaster happens, it's often seen as insensitive, opportunistic, or politicising to start talking about climate change. It's a tactic straight out of the playbook of the NRA that so effectively prevented gun law reform in the United States. Um, body count will have that conversation. It, just like the weather, it's not possible to definitively, of course, attribute a particular death to global warming, but it is possible to say that climate change was a factor. And it's certain that the stories told here are early warning signs of a worse to come. So the first slide is... 
That guy. Okay, David Tenner. He lost his wife, Alison, in the Canberra bushfires of 2003. He worked at the Air Force Base in Richmond. Alison was staying at home with their three teenage sons in Duffy, on the outer edge of the city, uh, right next to large pine plantations. Dry lightning started the fires in January 2003 and went on to burn more than a million hectares in the ACT New South Wales and Victoria. Scientists say it was the first time that had happened. The fires had so much energy they generated a tornado. When they roared into Canberra suburbs, the official advice was to return to your homes. 500 houses burned down and it's a miracle no more than four lives were lost. Alison, David's wife, died in her bath and he's standing there at the memorial in Canberra. Uh, you can see a brick with Alison's name there. Uh, he, uh, he, he agrees that his wife was a victim of climate change, wants her to be remembered, and he wants action. Uh, Leon Charmer Hearn uh, died at Steels Creek on Black Saturday in a well-prepared home that had a brilliant fire plan, according to the Royal Commissioner. I spoke to their son, Dale, on the right here, who works for the state government. He said, according to a neighbour, the last person to see his mum alive, the fire front came through in 90 seconds. It tore the roof off the Ahern's property. Once that happens, Dale says, it's game over. He told me, quote, I've read other accounts of properties in the district where the house didn't burn down, the house was lifted up and torn apart. This was a key difference between Ash Wednesday and Black Saturday, he says. Quote, and that, that, his dad and his uncle defended that very property in Ash Wednesday. Um, in 1983, when lives were lost where they were leaving, in 2009 they were defending. Stay or go was thought to be the best plan. That was a plan that was designed for a different level of threat than what was there on that day. The climate had changed. And that little uh, kookaburra was taken by Jenny Barnett, who died, their neighbour who died. She, was a, she might even be known to some people in this room. Uh, funny how one button can fail to work. There. Uh, Chuck McLeod, an 80-year-old diabetic with heart problems who lived in a little housing estate near Seven Hills in Western Sydney. On a 40-degree day just after Christmas in 2018, after a beer and a half, Chuck decided bugger the doctors and took off up to Bunnings on his mobility scooter. On the 20-minute round trip, he would have sucked in so much ground-level ozone, soon after returning home, he collapsed. His doctor of 14 years, Kim Liu, who campaigns for Doctors for the Environment, told a Stop Adani rally last year how for the very first time she wrote on the death certificate, heart attack slash heat. Chuck's conservative daughter, Evelyn, who's pictured here with a photo of her dad, um, she doesn't know whether Chuck's death was caused by climate change, but, and he was old and he had lots of comorbidities, but she told me she just wants to get the word out, look after your old folks in the heat. There's only two more. Danny McBride, a former bikey and tow truck driver who lost his wife, Link, Cheyenne, and two of their three kids in the Grantham floods of 2011. His story, this story of those floods is well known. Rescue workers described the Grantham flood as an inland tsunami, washed whole houses away. Danny was an RFS brigade captain who ignored instructions from headquarters down in Southport and worked all night rescuing people from the rising floodwaters. When the wave hit his home, Danny and Link tried to escape with the kids in the fire truck. Only Danny survived, along with Zach, his middle-aged son, who threw out the window and said, climb up that tree. Danny doesn't read. He blames the collapsed wall at the local quarry for the flood, and he doesn't trust the CSIRO or the Bureau of Meteorology. Quote, you look at the Weather Bureau, they tell you to look out for storms and that. You never get them because they're only guessing. 
he thinks the climate's changing back to the way it was when he was a kid. Mark and Gerard um, Orford, whose mother Mary died in the 2016 floods at La Trobe near Launceston. It was caused by an east coast low storm that shocked emergency chiefs stretching with the front stretching from Queensland to Tasmania. Mary was old and couldn't get up the tight st um, spiral staircase of the A-frame house that was built beside the Mersey River, which split in two when a wall of water came crashing down the valley and flooding their parents who were trapped. A council bulldozer, a police swift water rescue team, couldn't get to the house and as the night wore on, their father tried to float Mary on a mattress. So the water's coming up, he's got her on a mattress, he hung onto her so the water's freezing, it's pitch black, he hung onto her so long that the muscle ripped from his bone. Okay, and then at some point, he goes upstairs and gets trapped, can't come back down, she, she dies in that, in that bedroom, uh, lounge room. And um, Mark and Gerard think, okay, what caused that? The rain wasn't that heavy. They, they, they're not sure whether it's the hydro release some water or what, but they're not climate skeptics. And the quote here, you, you hear too much about it to be skeptical and say, well, it's not there. Um, it's obviously happening. What impact does it have on events like that? I don't know. Over a period of time, could it have done? Absolutely. No argument from me there. Something other than a lot of rain caused that or something else contributed to it. I don't know what caused it. To me, it was rain plus plus. So I've got more stories, about a dozen people, you know, a um, man who lost his wife to meliodosis after the um, Townsville floods or, um, you know, a woman I'm going to interview in Mernda tonight who lost her partner to um, thunderstorm asthma. Uh, so these stories are a glimpse of Australia's hotter future equally terrifying and inspiring as people respond by helping each other, showing love and guts. Driving into country towns from rural Tassie to far north Queensland, asking for interviews, talking to victims, I've expected to strike hostility. And I've had plenty of um, climate sceptics and I've had plenty of people who declined to participate. But I've also been genuinely surprised at the willingness of people to share these stories with me and allow me the privilege of telling them. It's not what I expected, a range of views, but in some ways it should not be surprising this group of Australians, like every other, is split about the impact of global warming. Even among the people who've suffered the most from climate change, there's uncertainty and confusion. The true risks of climate change have not been properly spelt out to the Australian people, and so we've failed to manage those risks and failed to act to reduce emissions. In one way, it's ignorance that's killing us, not climate change. Thank you. So Body Count aims to cut through all the figures, the degrees and the parts per million and the percentages and tell the Australian stories that show the dangers of the hotter world we are creating. Thank you. Thank you, Paddy. Michael. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Michael Thomas, and uh, I'd just like to thank Paddy for that um, sobering description. And um, we often talk about the, you know, the big things of climate change and the differences, um, but sometimes it's you know, really important to just see um, you know, the way it's impacting um, you know, real people out there. And um, I spent 20 years in the military, and the military um, is big on its traditions and customs and these sorts of things. And there's a saying that the military has, uh, lest we forget. And I just wonder, you know, as you're rolling, you know, scrolling through the, the roll call there, you know, if in you know, generations' time we'll be thinking about that in a similar way. 
Um, I've got five minutes today uh, to have a quick chat. Uh, and here's my slides. I'm going to go through them fairly quickly and really, I suppose, just try and uh, condense for you uh, 10 years of research that I've done uh, into the security impacts of climate change. Um, I think it's fair to say that climate change has arrived as Australia's number one security issue. I don't think we can um, you know, sort of uh, hedge our bets and uh, put it off for a future generation uh, anymore. It's here and it's now. And this summer, we saw that it's clear. Um, but it's had a mixed history, uh, climate change as a security issue. Uh, in this country, we tend to focus on what you might call the hard security issues of terrorism, of border security, uh, of high-end uh, war fighting and so on. Um, but elsewhere around the, uh, around the world, when we look, uh, particularly uh, across Europe, uh, across the US, across the United States, um, they're, they're onto this. They've been onto it for a long time. Um, in fact, uh, during my research, I saw that uh, the United States um, in the late 1970s even identified climate change as a national security risk. Uh, this discussion um, has, been, has been powerful and it's been big, but it's been, it hasn't, been, hasn't had the same level of um, perhaps uh, cachet or um, perhaps interest uh, for the Australian defence sector uh, and security sector across, well, indeed, since, since it's been a real issue um, for some decades now. Um, one of the challenges, probably the biggest challenge uh, for a defence, uh, from a defence perspective and a security perspective, more so from the Australian Defence Organisation, is the partisan political divide and the challenges that that presents. The ADF, the military, is, is an apolitical organisation and so it is super tuned into what's going on on the political side. And so it makes it very difficult when we have uh, such a partisan, uh, toxic uh, climate, um, climate politics in this country for the military to really get actively engaged in thinking about what those security threats are and being engaged in national debates on climate change and climate security. And that's a, real, that's a great shame, to be honest. It's a great miss because um, uh, for me and for large sections of the community, when generals or admirals speak, people listen. So it's been a voice that's been missing uh, to some degree uh, from our national narrative on climate change. And I'll put this quote up there. Uh, some of you may be familiar with it uh, from Fawlty Towers, um, this idea of don't mention the war. I mentioned it once and I think I got away with it. This is how sort of climate change is uh, sort of almost um, dealt with, with inside the military. Um, I also read uh, a, um, a comment from uh, a Pentagon colleague who said that um, you know, the Pentagon under Trump now talk about climate change like eighth graders talk about sex in code words. So it's this sort of um, creates this uh, really difficult dynamic or uh, difficult um, ability for the uh, military to get out there and actually um, have a say and have a voice. So conscious of time, I will move along. I just want to make the point on that one, though, that um, when Morrison talks about his practical doctrine and he's flagging some uh, changes, uh, you, know, you know, this sort of idea that he's uh, going to get the military out there and um, this precedent speed set and he's going to um, do this, that and the other, you can't do anything unless you're reducing emissions. That's the source of the threat. So... <laughs> It would kind of be like you're fighting ISIS in Syria. On the one hand, you've got your frontline troops, but at the back end, you're actually resupplying them on the other. It just, it's nonsensical. So you've got to have both. This is just different ways to conceive of security. Uh, in this country, we're focused about national security, but we shouldn't forget there's other uh, lenses, if you will, uh, of how to view security. 
ecological security, human security, and of course global security. Uh, climate change has implications and ramifications across this entire, entire pyramid. And I should say, this is just the way I conceive of it. The point here, though, is that climate change, if you undermine that base, and that's what climate change does, it undermines ecological security, then everything else um, upwards on that pyramid crumbles. So it's, um, you know, we shouldn't just focus on the national security. There are other elements and dimensions to it. Just a couple of points on the ADF itself. The fires have brought home to the ADF that it's almost um, uh, the ADF, uh, you know, certainly from some of the colleagues I speak to, uh, is now awake to the idea that climate change is a security threat. So it is permeating deeper and wider within defence itself. Um, I've seen now a lot of analysts, a lot of talk since the fires are coming out and saying, well, you know, gee, we missed this one, but how about we need to do this or we need to do that? So the conversation is now starting to be had. Um, make the point as well, the ADF uh, is the largest landholder in Australia. It has around 72 major bases uh, across the country. Uh, it's got a budget uh, of $36 billion with a uh, projected forecast of $200 billion across the next decade. So um, this is big money. And so what climate change is going to start to do is to make that conversation start people thinking about, gee, if we're spending, say, mm, let's see, uh, $70 billion on uh, 12 submarines, $17 billion on 50-odd joint strike fighters, uh, what if we actually threw a little bit money, more money to aerial firefighting capability or more engineering services or more hospitals? So this is an important conversation that needs to be had in the country. And if we're going to get serious about it, if Morrison's going to get serious about it, that's the uh, direction it needs to go. Uh, I'm conscious of my time here. So there's just some uh, snapshots. I just want to call out two slides there. Um, that's that's what, um, what really surprised me about the recent fires was the breadth and scope of what the ADF um, did uh, during the bushfires. And it, it's, it's actually um, it's a heck of a lot, and it's really uh, encouraging to see, but it's not the solution. Uh, but some things that defence can offer, and I'll just call out two things there. One is leadership. Um, uh, uh, General Jake Alwood there, who um, headed up the operation from a military perspective, uh, great guy, great leadership, people do listen. Um, I just love that point about the uh, sort of the hardened vets there uh, with the, you know, um, nursing the koalas and the native wildlife. Who would have thought you'd have uh, veterans of Afghanistan sitting there, um, you know, providing milk uh, for our native wildlife? So it's this idea of um, that it, it permeates in ways that we could never conceive. And so we need to get a good mind's thinking about, you know, what that's going to entail. That. Carbon footprint. The military also has a carbon footprint. Um, this is the ADF's uh, carbon footprint, 1.7 million tonnes. Small, it's small change when you compare it on a national scale, but actually, against some countries, it actually, um, actually, it's actually a bit. Um, I've actually also worked out that, uh, or done some uh, calculations, that if the global military sector was taken as a country, then it would be within the top 20 emitters uh, uh, globally. So it's just something to consider for the military. I'm not going to touch on that. I'm just going to touch on this as the last slide. NASA, in the last day, some of you may have seen this, have updated this, uh, the, the, the image, if you like, the rendering image of the pale blue dot. And this was the um, uh, Viking that set off uh, from Florida in 1977. And in 1990, uh, 1990, Carl Sagan said, you know what, let's turn the camera around. Let's take a photograph uh, of the Earth from 6 billion uh, kilometres away. 
And this is the image. This is called pale blue dot for those that are unfamiliar. Um, but if you look closely, you'll see that um, that arrow there points to Earth. Everything that's ever happened, happened uh, on that planet. And if you look really closely, you won't see another one. So I'm just going to leave that as my closing slide. Thanks. Thank you, Michael. Annika. G'day, everyone. How lovely is this gentle rain? I'm from way out west where the rain don't fall, so I'm enjoying it. So this is a photo of my beautiful parents um, on my family farm out in far western New South Wales near Broken Hill, which is a stunningly beautiful part of the country with rich biodiversity and this beautiful farming community. Uh, this is where I grew up with my brothers. Uh, this is where I'll be getting married next month. This is where... <laughs> This is where family members have been laid to rest. So this is a place that I have a very strong sense of belonging to, a sense of responsibility, of looking after this place and the people who live here. So it's breaking my heart that this is what my family farm has become. The future that I thought I had is being blown away. And the rate and the scale of the changes that are happening out there are something we can't adapt quick enough to. We've done extensive tree plantings, but when open ground soil temperatures are reaching 70 degrees Celsius, it's no wonder those trees are baking. Uh, we have African sheep and goats, which are arguably the most hardiest livestock species on the planet but it's too hot and dry for them anymore, so we've had to sell them, uh, because they're no longer dropping lambs, because extreme high temperatures actually make sheep and goats infertile. Season after season, records are being smashed in high temperatures and low rainfalls. And anyone in this room under the age of 40, we have never known a year of global average temperatures or below. So why does this matter to you guys in the audience? Because I'm a food producer who grows the food that ends up on your plate. And my family farm no longer produces food. But I'm not here to seek sympathy. Um, I'm here because I'm frustrated. Because it doesn't have to be this way. And agriculture holds a very unique position on the topic of climate change because, yes, we are a part of the problem. We contribute greenhouse gas emissions. We are one of the most vulnerable and exposed industries to the impacts of climate change. And we are a key player in the solutions. And there are so many solutions. Ways that we can reduce emissions from our sector ways that we can capture and store carbon that has been put up in our atmosphere in excess. We know what the accelerators are, policy, capital, behavior, social change, and we know what benefits will come of this. Benefits to society, benefits to jobs and the economy, benefits to our environment to make it more productive, to make it more resilient to these changing conditions. 
And if you're interested to learn more about the solutions that agriculture holds, uh, head along to Farmers for Climate Action. Write it down in your book. Uh, this is a national movement of farmers who are finding the courage to admit that, yeah, we play a very important role on the topic of climate change. We're feeling the impacts today. We're seeing it when we look out the kitchen window. Uh, and we want to be part of the solutions. And I think everyone, everyone here can actually play a role in this larger story. Time, treasure, and talent. Donate your time to these causes. Donate your treasure to these causes. You have these skills. You have these circles of influence. So we can all step out and to be the leaders that we have been waiting for. Thank you. Thank you, Annika. Thank you, everyone, uh, for everything in this session, including Greg's wonderful speech and all your presentations. I've scribbled down a few questions um, while you were talking. And the first one is sort of to you, Patty, but open to everyone. Just jump in um, if, you, if you want to add something. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, the human stories are incredibly powerful. I mean, they they, more than anything, I think, have the ability to move people towards action. Um, and I just suddenly thought, while you were talking about your book, Body Count, that um, the organisation Destroying the Joint um, started keeping a record of all the women who are murdered um, due to domestic violence. And that's been a very powerful tool in terms of uh, creating greater awareness of domestic violence and its cost to us as a society. Why not, I mean, and I can't think of a better name for something about uh, people um, in, you know, being killed basically by climate change than another destroying the joint. After all, that's basically what's going on. I mean, why don't we make these stories more, I mean, I know you're doing everything you can, but we have been a very much a stats, dry facts kind of a movement. Do you think the time has come to move into a more shocking, quite, you know, dramatic, like destroying the joint kind of way of going? Um, well, it's a complicated question because, first of all, like the biggest killer from climate, if it's heat or smoke or whatever, they're silent killers, you know, they're statistical deaths and so, and often with heat, like the cause of death is not properly written down, it's a heart attack or it's some other reason. Um, so, so actually putting your finger on the deaths is not easy scientifically or medically. Um, but I think, you know, someone was saying to me, you know, the way the state ascribes the cause of death is actually one of the fundamental acts of, you know, the state. It's a powerful thing. And uh, I think it's about, yeah, just sort of shifting the lens a little bit and going, well, actually, that is, you know, that death toll is related to climate. And, um, yeah, I'm just trying to sort of start that um, discussion with the book. But, yeah, I think it, you do need to... Um, the problem is, it's like Rebecca Huntley saying that, you know, do, is the alarm just an emergency just turns people, the people that need to be persuaded about climate change, it turns them off. Um, so I'm kind of stuck on that, on that dilemma. What do the rest of you think? Greg? Um, look, one of the hats I wear is chair of the ambulance board in New South Wales, and one of the biggest killers is heat waves. So it kills far more people than bushfires, floods, um, and Sydney and Melbourne and Canberra were smoked in, so the number of 
I don't know how many people died early deaths um, from respiratory complaints. So these are all climate driven. Um, so you, you add them all up, extreme weather, floods, cyclones, very severe cyclones. Um, the body count just goes up and up. And I think we should all be very, very concerned and governments should be. Uh, so maybe that's something the AMA could think about if they suspect as a doctor that a death is related, as you quoted the doctor saying, heart attack, heat. Maybe they could say heart attack, climate change. Um, I'll just say, the, the AMAs, I mean, even the four, um, you know, people we've heard from this morning that as, as doctors, the, the AMAs, it's got to be careful, they've got to be careful. Um, they have got a conservative membership. There are arguments within the uh, membership about, about it. They can't, there's only so much, you know, like Tony Bartoni, for example, did not want to be interviewed for this book, uh, notwithstanding putting his name to a climate emergency declaration. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's very political. Could I also just make the point that it's not just the human lives that we're losing here. The loss of biodiversity that we're seeing in this country is just inexcusable. <laughs> Uh, in the arid region, we've, you know, we've got this incredible, rich and wondrous biodiversity that have evolved over millennia to survive the harshest of conditions, and we are seeing them disappear from our landscape. On my own family farm, we have these ancient old river red gum trees, you know, 500-year-old trees, and they're dying now. And these are markers on our landscape saying we have not experienced conditions like these for hundreds of years when we see trees like those dying. Marco, you want to... Yeah, Jane, I was just going to make the point from, a, I guess, a security perspective and a military perspective on that idea of attribution, attributing, um, you know, this event caused that. I think that's one of the, been a challenge uh, from a security perspective because uh, traditionally, you know, sort of that hard security, it's like, uh, you know, there's the bad person uh, or the bad country, um, right? We've got a clearly defined enemy, um, you know, clear as day, and we shape our whole sort of military-industrial complex around, um, you know, that particular adversary. Uh, whereas climate change is much more different from that. Um, it really gets into the fabric of all our economic transport, health, uh, everything, um, environmental, ecological. And so from a security perspective, it's much more um, difficult. It's ubiquitous, it's ephemeral, uh, it's, it's everywhere, and it's all of us. So very uh, challenging uh, security issue. But just that point about attribution. Mm. Thank you all for that. And um, uh, to the point that came up a little bit, particularly from you, Patty. Um, why, this still puzzles me, why are the politics around this issue of climate change, which we can all see is happening, I mean the evidence is overwhelming, why so toxic in Australia, not toxic in Europe, not toxic in Britain, even under Boris Johnson, of whom I am no fan, but you know, what, why is the barrier the very system that we thought we could trust? to look after the very basic things like enough food and, you know, better health for the population. Why is that our barrier? Well, that's what I think about ignorance is, um, and it's not a criticism of people, it's just that, what, you know, when, we, when AIDS came, we had a massive campaign to uh, warn Led the world in that. Yeah. When we've got, Australia has led the way on tobacco control, you know, plain packaging, you know, the government just has been absolute absent on climate, it has not warned. So you go up to King Lake and they are still, you know, the people I interviewed in King Lake, still a sore point about climate. And yet you're bloody well here 
um, Bernard Teague on the radio the other day going, oh, we didn't talk about climate change in the Royal Commission because all the scientists were agreed on it, so it seemed like a side issue. Like, what? So that was a moment, that was the worst climate disaster we've had, hundreds and hundreds of people dead, and, um, and the government said nothing about it. A royal omission, I was, you know, half the people. So, um, so basically, a decade later, they're still divided up in Kinglake about, oh, no, it wasn't really climate, it was, you know, nature cleaning up. Like, what? So um, I think the government has got a major public education job that it should have done that it hasn't done. Well, Greg, you came up against the toxic politics when you tried to meet with uh, our Prime Minister before the fire season. What's your take on it? Uh, look, I don't, I don't really understand it. I think the Prime Minister might regret a few things, holding up bits of coal, not meeting with fire chiefs, etc., etc. but I can't find it in me to feel sorry for him. I'm, I apologise for that. Um, it, um, it's a big job. He's there to protect us. I, I was told by former public servants who worked in Canberra that the moment we put in our letter the words climate change, we were discarded as activists and political and that uh, we could not be trusted just like those, you know, those doctors, those radical doctors and those radical scientists who actually point to evidence and data and research um, can't be trusted. So sorry, everyone. I'm an activist. Good. Michael? I'm uh, just going to make the observation. I think that um, it's important that we reach... I think one of the things I've realised from the security perspective is that we're having conversations with people that uh, are not here today, uh, are not sort of across the science, and, um, you know, reaching into that section to the community. So in, from a security perspective, I think about uh, those of a, from a conservative, a right, um, from the right of politics, who may not necessarily listen to, you know, Adam Ban or Peter Garrett, uh, but may listen to, um, you know, a general or a retired admiral that stands up and says, no, this is a security issue, or a former fire chief. Um, so reaching into those parts of the community, um, and just trying to turn the dial, uh, to shift the dial, to um, shift the conversation uh, to, uh, to, to their terrain, terrain that they're familiar with. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, when we see our politicians sort of, uh, you know, this uh, particularly, again, on the right of Australian politics, in my mind's eye, they're only reflecting their community. And so, but if you can reach in and, and make change in that community, then you'll see that, you know, if the votes <laughs> go, then they'll change uh, their views. It leads me to a question I wanted to ask you, Annika, because I'm a fellow farmer. And um, I, one thing that puzzles my husband and I all the time is no one up our way, we're near the Barrington Tops rainforest, it had major fires in it. Rainforests aren't meant to burn. Um, it had two major fires. Um, they are all convinced in the reality of climate change, the river dried up, it's never dried up, you know, all that kind of thing. And yet when we ask them how they vote, they vote for climate change deniers. And we ask why, and the answer, that's who my father voted for. 
Yeah, it's very tricky. And I agree, like all the farmers that I know and I talk with, I mean, you just have to look out the window and you're seeing climate change in action. I wake up in the morning and I'm seeing the dust fly past my bedroom window. There's very little denial, as far as I can see, actually in the farming community. And I think that's why we're really seeing, you know, this growing voice coming out of rural Australia and from the farming community in particular, because we are noticing the impacts on our wallets today. We are looking at the impacts on the ground and you know we're seeing people leaving our communities because the conditions are becoming so difficult and it's unfortunate because we're missing all these opportunities too i mean renewable energies on farms they can give us secondary and stable sources of income carbon sequestration schemes and biodiversity schemes you know as secondary and stable sources of income ways to ride out these rough times like the droughts so it just makes so much sense that we start acting on climate change today um yes i don't know about <laughs> why they're voting in that way, people vote for so many different reasons, but I think that's why it's so important for us as individuals to actually find our voices and to make sure that those who say are representing us are actually representing us. Because I think that's the point I want to make, yeah. But Michael, you say the politicians represent the community, but certainly I think the divide between, let's say, the dominant philosophy of the National Party as it stands in Canberra at the moment and the rising um, alarm, I think, amongst farming communities, the disconnect is huge. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's true. I was talking to Michael Mann last night about uh, the 60 Minutes uh, when he was with Barnaby Joyce. He made the point that um, I, I just there is incremental change, not as fast as we want, but I think the, the, the seeds of change within the on the conservative side of politics are there, um, but I obviously, clearly, not, not fast enough and not large enough. But he made the point that Barnaby Joyce didn't actually refute the science of climate change in that 60 Minutes, um, you know, uh, session there. So, you know, this is a long way from, you know, if you follow his statements uh, going back to 2010. So I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I'm just saying there the seeds of that change seem to be, and it's going to be things like this, big events uh, here in Australia. Uh, that, that will, you know, when the community are impacted the way they are and the nation is impacted the way they are, this blind Freddy can see it. So um, maybe that'll be the harbinger of political change. And there's something else I've wondered about for a while, um, and I'd love your uh, take on this. I think it's emblematic, or, or we see it clearly in the very odd reaction amongst a certain demographic towards Greta Thunberg. Um, the um, absolute, almost, uh, I, I can best act it out rather than use a word, that sort of, <laughs> how dare she, um, <laughs> stuff. Um, and it strikes me that there's something else quite subtle going on amongst those who are in denial or resisting. And it, oh, I'm sorry to be a battered old feminist about this, but it's like patriarchy has a view that nature is there for man's domination and that it is part of being the kind of winner bloke uh, that you get to consume all the natural resources, that you get to mould, landscape, blast, frack, I offer ladies and gentlemen, um, the natural world. Um, and that, that by saying, no, we need to nurture, care for, collaborate and, and be guardians and stewards of this land, not its dominant, you know, not its boss, uh, that we are fundamentally 
causing an existential crisis among a certain kind of masculinity. Your take. Yeah, the, um, Naomi Klein writes a lot about that, the extractivist mentality and, you know, this changes everything. And, um, and uh, yeah, it's great to see, um, yeah, their worst nightmare, a, a young schoolgirl just calling it, calling it like it is. So, um, but I, um, I think who cares anyway? Like, who cares about them? They're going to... Um, well, they run countries. Hey. They run countries. Not, not for long. Not for long because, you know, they're so old and uh, with no, no disrespect intended. They're so few and they're so old. Uh, you know, the actual, you know, the, there's, I always think there's three things in our favour, basically. They're going to die. Um, <laughs> the solutions get cheaper and the, and the planet gets scarier. So those three trends are unstoppable. Yeah, I think it's telling the good stories too. I mean, I look at the farming community and farmers often have their eyes on the horizon because we need to make sure we've got enough vegetation to fatten the cattle. We need to be carrying the, enough water to water the crops next season. Many of our businesses are multi-generational. So yeah, you can't have that over-extractive mindset. You have to have that long-term vision. And they're the kind of stories and those messages that we need to be getting out there and going, this is what sustainability looks like and should look like. And are you seeing farmers up your way changing their practices as a result of that and doing kind of more um, uh, of the kinds of farming that you had on your uh, slide before? Yeah, farmers, you know, these are incredibly adaptive, resilient breed of people, and that's why I love being in agriculture. Uh, in my region, in the far west of New South Wales, the rate and the scale of the changes, it's, it's so great. We are really struggling to adapt because we are experiencing these extreme temperatures, you know, weeks over 40 degrees. Um, you know, we haven't had proper rainfall for four years at least. Um, what can you do? I mean, we've come to the end of the line in terms of adaptive capacity at the moment. We've got African sheep and goats and we've had to destock. What's next? And this is why we need more research, development, ex ex you know, extension, all of these things, and really looking at, okay, well, how do we um, you know, help farmers adapt? How do we actually ensure food security for our nation? Greg or Michael, do you want to comment on what we've been talking about? I look back to Greta. I love Greta because um, my daughter rang me one day and said, Dad, I just thought you were an old dickhead, but Greta's retweeted something you wrote. And I go, yes. And uh, so, so just, if you didn't get that, I'm cool. Um, but look, it's bullying. It's just bullying. They're like the bad kids on the school bus. Remember them? That's yeah, I do. The back and they used to blow smoke into my afro and I'd get, get in trouble. Mum said I was smoking. But they It might have been me. They're just the ass. Yeah, no, no, you were good. Um, the assholes at school became politicians. Some of them, in, and you've got people like in charge of America, a very stable genius, and it, it's just yes, they will die. Thank God, um, but you know, by natural causes, I hope, and with all due respect. But I, I do see the shift. I do see the shift. So they've got to shout down. Bullies have to shout down anybody who says anything against what they want to happen, uh, forget the evidence, we don't rely on evidence, um, and I think it's shifting. The, the dialogue has changed, 
And I, don't, I think it's actually a mistake. One of the things that appalls me about international politics and Australian politics is the politics of hate. They're the enemy and we have to hate somebody. We have to blame somebody, the greenies, who won't let us backburn wrong term. It's hazard reduction, you idiots. But anyway, um, the, you know, the arsonists will tell the clouds to stop sending the arsonist lightning. Um, <laughs> They're lighting yeah. floods now. So, we, yeah, we have to blame someone. We have to be angry. And this is... It's just got to stop. We've got an existential threat and people on the front line, like farmers, we're sitting here consuming, going, yeah, it's really bad for the poor farmers out there. No, this is fair dinkum. We're all affected by this. And we need our politicians to come together. And, look, you've got people like Zali Stegel trying to do that, trying to do bipartisan stuff... And people like me, I can't fall victim to starting to bag people in Canberra who it's won't okay, leave that to me. Yeah, OK. Um, but we've got to start bringing together and get rid of these bullies and just say, I wouldn't put up with bullying in the workplace, um, so you don't put up with it in politics either. And, and can I...? Just on bullying, I think it's absolutely true, and they bully other journalists as well. So a lot of these people um, in the media that have the big mouthpiece and want to be the loudest voice and are, uh, you know, uh, they also bully other media. They bully the ABC. Uh, they, you know, and so we're into this false balance thing. We're stuck in it. And um, and if you, you know, sound alarmed about climate change, you're an activist, and that applies whether you know uh, to journalists as well. And you know, um, and I've kind of got a view that um, if you tell the truth, and the truth is alarming, are you an activist? No. Um, so, you know, I think the media needs to push back on those people as, as well, and the media is, to, is at fault equally. As I said, the government should have done public education. Well, the media, um, by failing, you know, by, by getting stuck on this false balance is, is, the, is part of, very big part of the problem. We have a question from the floor. And it is. There is no voice for Indigenous people's experience. Now, I think, that, to be fair, there are quite a few Indigenous people who speak long and loud about this. You may mean on this particular panel. Um, how do we change this? I think maybe there is a voice for Indigenous people's experience. Maybe people aren't listening to it. Just going to make a point there. Um, there is a voice, and uh, this is where I think, uh, you know, just bringing the, uh, I mentioned the ADF budget of $36 billion. One thing with the uh, Indigenous communities uh, that, uh, where, I, where I'm from and that we work with, one thing they're screaming out for is dollars, uh, is money. They, they need that, they need budget to make things happen. They need to, you know, develop that capacity to really get some good programs on the ground. In this instance, you know, it might be um, caring for country, you know, again, um, pardon my military lingo, but caring for country units uh, around each state or each city or each region um, and bringing in those voices so they can actually... But giving them the kit, giving them the equipment, giving them the uh, capacity and the capability to actually uh, be part and, um, uh, and do that. So I would say, you know, this, this sort of, to me, uh, lends itself to... Um, we've got a lot of budget out there. Uh, we're a wealthy country. Uh, let's start allocating that so that we can uh, see more voices in this space. Um, there was a guy called Bruce um, Shillingsworth that you might have seen on Q&A just got stuck into the panel from the audience, goes, put the water back in the river. Where, do you, if you remember that episode on drought, um, First Nation rights to water. He was talking at a climate uh, emergency rally that was held, um, the People's 
summit that was held outside the Parliament House last week. Um, he's a great voice for um, how climate change is impacting um, Indigenous uh, communities. And the truth is that they are disproportionately impacted. And um, so one of the people I've interviewed for this book, for example, is a guy, Simon Quilty, um, brother of the painter, uh, who's a, a doctor out of Catherine, has moved, I think, to Alice now. Uh, but what you're talking about, and CSIRO has done work on this, is projections for that top end slash interior that are uninhabitable. So you've got some of the old, you've got the world's oldest living civilization that's about to be, uh, you know, potentially, um, you know, going to have to move. People walking off country because you can't, it's not fit for humans anymore. So, you know, there's, a, and you, I don't know if you read Sand Talk, the um, Tyson Junker Porter book, but he talks about, okay, this is a catastrophe. This culture has faced catastrophes before, but there are, def there definitely are voices out there um, that are kind of talking about what is going to be the impact of climate change on indigenous communities. You remind me of the guy on Q&A a couple of weeks ago who said, when asked what can we do best about um, climate change, he said, get in the passenger seat and let us drive as a representative yeah. of Indigenous Australians. And I thought it was brilliant. Any other quick comments before I move to the next question? Look, just really quickly, um, a voice for Indigenous people, we've treated them abhorrently for centuries, um, and it's sort of a paternalistic, yeah, we'll listen now. Um, the cultural burning practices, which I didn't know much about, but they're so sophisticated, uh, you know, understanding what germinates when, when the birds are nesting, when they're... Um, and you have to have that deep connection to country to understand it, and it can heal the landscape, and, but they haven't got any money. They can't do it. So these are the sort of things we need to listen to the people who looked after the place for 60,000 years before us or more, and... Um, partner and learn. Thank you. Well, this looks like a question very much aimed at you, Annika. How can government help farmers that have reached limits to adaptation? Well, the first thing that would help me sleep a lot better at night is to stop releasing more greenhouse gases into our atmosphere. <laughs> Uh, we also need a national strategy on agriculture and climate change, a clear direction of where we're going and how we're going to get there. There are so many uh, solutions held in agriculture and how we can reduce emissions from our sector and how we can draw down carbon from the atmosphere. And we need actually, you know, the RD&E, we need the roadmap on how to do it and, you know, bring in those fragmented efforts around the country which are doing great works but actually make it more effective so we're not wasting the scarce resources. And this one looks like it's for you, Michael. Does military climate preparedness go beyond disaster response? Uh, that's a good question. I would say that uh, yes, it does. Um, but we have to remember the military is primarily focused on, you know, I guess those, you know, the, the so-called adversaries, always preparing for, you know, this sort of uh, low probability but high consequence event. Um, so it, it is in the mix. Um, it's increasingly in the mix. Uh, and so I think we live in a region, you know, if we look at the Indo-Pacific, um, it's uh, a mess with uh, climate disasters. Uh, 
disasters are increasing uh, more than anything else. Uh, it's incredible uh, what's happening. Uh, if you look uh, to uh, the Middle East, for example, uh, certainly the instance in Syria where uh, preceding uh, the Syrian crisis and even the Arab Spring was triggered by, um, we call it our millennial drought. Well, they had a millennial drought that was, they've been there for 2,000 years and it was the worst in their 2,000 year history. Uh, and that was exacerbated by, um, you know, uh, Australia had, um, uh, you know, uh, destroyed crops, uh, Pakistan had destroyed crops, uh, Russia stopped exports of wheat and so on, uh, of, of wheat. So, and that then triggered this huge crisis, mass migration into Europe. So these are the sort of things that the military uh, does prepare for. Uh, and yeah, certainly we're in a region, but, it, but it's also now here, it's home, it's on our home front as well. So, um, yeah. I'm so glad you said that about the drought in Syria. I, I said that on the drum or something once and got castigated for days about it. So now I feel vindicated. Thank you very much. Um, Greg, can you give some examples of fire management changes that are necessary? Yeah, sure. Look, a few things that I've, I've just got to do a bit of myth busting. So um, burning everything actually puts more carbon in the air and actually won't solve the problem. Um, the, these fires, I've been to fires this, uh, this summer that burnt over people's lawns, it burnt through areas that have been hazard reduced a year ago, and one fire up near Ratville uh, where the leaves drop, dropping from the burnt trees after the fire had gone through two weeks before burnt again. So, and satellite imagery shows that the fires actually sped up over light fuels. So these were weather-driven events, not fuel-driven events, but fuel reduction is part of the mix. We need to bring in that indigenous knowledge, cultural burning, to try and heal the landscape as we burn and reduce hazards. Um, fire management, our fire services are excellent, the leadership is excellent, but they can't cope with this enemy. It's an overwhelming enemy. And don't, um, just look at California, firefighter heaven. I've worked there quite a bit. As many aircraft, fire trucks, people as you want, um, they lost 18,000 homes and 100 dead in 2018, 9,000 the year before. So globally it's getting worse. We need to look at building standards, Australian Standard 3959. We have to toughen up the homes so they don't burn and they can be refuges. We need community refuges like they're building in Portugal. Um, there's just a, it's resilience measures while we're driving down the emissions, we must adapt to a far more dangerous here and now, not a future. It's here with us now. And we do need to use the military in support roles, not firefighting. Every logistics person in the fire service you release can jump on a truck, hopefully, and it's a force multiplier out there. And, of course, aircraft. But um, our Prime Minister didn't know to stop it anyway. Uh, <laughs> You're among friends, Greg. <laughs> We possibly have time for a quick answer to this final question. Stories from the front line don't affect politicians. Not sure that's true. What else can we do? Vote them out. Um, yeah, I don't think that's true. Um, there's politicians here that are certainly affected and, um, you know, for example, Carol Sparks, the mayor of Glen Innes, um, lost a home in the bushfires just now. Um, lost two neighbours that she knew, um, and Andrew Constance seems to be extremely affected. Andrew Constance, the state MP, um, 
you know, I just uh, went at one of the um, climate and health rallies I went to in Parliament House, Helen Haynes, member for Indi, takes in King Lake, talks about the long-term effects of, um, which she sees in her community, she's a public health expert, uh, she talks about the long-term health effects of Black Saturday that is still evident on the kids that have grown up without parents, um, what, you know, they're acting out or they've got, you know, um, mentally, um, mental health problems of various kinds. And I don't think that's true that the politicians don't care. Um, I just think that I think there's too many of them trapped and being, you know, like there's only the number of sceptics in, in that parliament, I reckon, is probably about a quarter at the most. Um, that's but they, That's huge, though. Yeah, but it's still only 25%, and yet that, you know, it's just that hard right rump that is, um, that is you know, through the gnats uh, controlling the whole thing. Then again, there's the irony of Tony Abbott out there fighting fires. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, the irony there of that. There is just the irony of Tony Abbott. I think you could stop there. <laughs> We've got 30 seconds left. Go, Annika. I think there's a lot that we can do. You know, everyone can use their social influence, their consumer influence, their political influence. We know what's causing the problem. We've got the technology and the know-how to do it. It's just a matter of people getting their act together. Greg, last word to you. Ditto. But look, there's a lot of politicians. There's a lot of really good people. There's a rump who are bullies, and we've got to stop them bullying the majority who actually want to get on with it. And this is where we need this bipartisan approach. Thank you so much. Can we please thank this awesome panel for all their expertise, their knowledge, their work, their effort, their truth-telling. And most of all, their refusal to give up. This was a podcast you, from Jane. the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. 